Hello, we are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, researchers, and other experts, which impact the ever-changing social world we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land where we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belong to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are privileged that we can welcome you to today's conversation. Welcome, welcome everyone. I'm Aubrey Hoffer, your graduate student host of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics. My superb guest today is Dr. Sarah Lindstrom Johnson. Dr. Lindstrom Johnson is an ASU alum, getting her BS in biology and society with a minor in women's studies at here at ASU before going on to get a PhD in public health from Johns Hopkins. Her training in public health has added another layer to her work on positive youth development. Dr. Lindstrom Johnson frequently partners with youth serving organizations such as schools, primary care clinics, and community organizations in order to develop solutions to problems that are feasible and sustainable within communities. She's also an incredibly nice person. So for all of that and more, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Aubrey, this is fun. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. So the podcast is gonna start and end the same way. I'm gonna ask you three rapid fire questions. These first ones are just introductory icebreakers to get to know you a little bit better on a surface level. And then the ending ones are gonna get quick bites of your personal philosophy. The point is to just try to answer them off the top of your head. How does that sound? I think we can make it work. Okay, perfect. So our first question, Sarah, is what is your favorite way to keep moving? Sports, the gym, how do you stay active? I used to be a gym member, actually a member of our local YMCA because I wanted to support sort of their youth programming um, by, you know, contributing dues. But um, since, you know, we've all been at home, um, apps, the Nike app, there's a free Nike app and they have kind of either pre-recorded, well, they're all pre-recorded sort of, um, uh, training sessions. And I'm a big fan of like hit workouts. So you will oh, wow. find me in this room, which I seem to spend a lot of time in, um, <laughs> alternatively working or sweating. <laughs> I love that. So the second question, Sarah, is what is your favorite game? So I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. Um, and so at the moment, a big favorite is Uno or Go Oink. If you've ever heard of Go Oink, where you kind of, it's like Go Fish, except you make the noises of the animals. And if you don't use the noises, you use the name, you get punished. Uh, like you, you lose your turn. That sounds so severe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Punishment sounds severe. <laughs> you lose your turn. <laughs> the that. interesting one is, so my favorite is like, how does a bobcat sound? Right? Like, so like you get the bobcat card. It's like a sort of noise, apparently. <laughs> so there's your tidbit of information. I would just do an impression of uh, the comedian Bobcat Goldthwaite, I think, which is so obscure. I don't think my six-year-old would roll with that one. <laughs> that would amuse me, but I think it would, uh, maybe not for the six-year-old yet. You'd get punished. <laughs> <laughs> punished. All right, so the last question, Sarah, is do you have any superstitions? 
You know, I don't actually have any superstitions. I'm not very superstitious. I'm a routine person. So I like follow the same order, like, you know, maybe my life is too much Groundhog's Day, but there's like a routine to my day that I, that I enjoy, but I'm not superstitious at all. Interesting. My uh, boyfriend's family is from the Philippines and there's sort of a lot of superstitions over there that his mom follows. And one that always sticks with me is that um, you're not, if someone, if someone gives you shoes as a gift, you're supposed to give them money because I bought my boyfriend a pair of sneakers that were really nice. And his mom was like, oh, you need to give her money now as a result of this. And I was like, all right, well, I mean, that one works for me. So <laughs> you're like, I'm getting paid for a gift that I give you. I always get, my husband always gets me sneakers for uh, Christmas. It's kind of like a tradition. So like, you know, you're supposed to replace your shoes every year. Like, well, I do because this is one thing he always gets me for Christmas. So I guess that's kind of a, a maybe a boring gift, but <laughs> this year he did really well. I like them. I love that. Okay, so moving into our conversation a little bit, Sarah, I am, first of all, just when I read your CV, you absolutely blow me away because you have done so much that I feel like if someone just read your CV, they would think you were like a hundred years old because you've done so much already. And then they see you and it's like, okay, when does she sleep or eat or do anything? Um, but one thing that really blows me away is how much service you do in your role as an academic to the community, like so much of your career is built on this idea of giving back. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about why, why is that so important to you? And do you think that's important for all academics? Yeah, so no, it is really important to this idea of giving back. And honestly, I almost, that's probably, you know, to some extent, that's why I got into this profession um, is that, you know, I, I, I see things that I want to fix. So I always say I'm an interventionist, right? So I design, implement, and evaluate interventions. And that's because, you know, it's the, so what, what can we do? What can we do differently? How can we, how can we make things better for children, for families, for society as a whole? So I think this, this notion of giving back, um, is obviously fundamental to what I do, but I don't see it per se, I think in my day-to-day -day as giving back. I see it as uh, community and teamwork. And so that's probably like the, the larger thread, I think that, that, that guides me is that I really like people. I like working with people. I like working in teams. I do team science. I was really fortunate sort of in my early career to um, have two mentors that had fabulous teams of all different types of individuals partnering together to, to, to solve problems. And so I've taken that forward with me um, in my research, but then my research involves, so because of my interest in real change, um, I think it's critical to partner with stakeholders who are already sort of on the ground um, doing things and see how you can come beside them and sort of uh, improve what they're already doing or um, support them in other ways. So I think teamwork, I would say, is almost more important to giving back is that I really fundamentally believe in the power of collaboration to make a difference. 
Right. It sounds like you very much have uh, what most people would call like a people first approach. And I think that's really important, right? Because in academia, I think a lot of times we get into these bubbles of doing research where, you know, we sort of forget that we are at the end of the day studying people and that the work that we do is impacting people. Yeah, no, I think when I feel disconnected or when I kind of have moments, you know, in our careers, we have moments where we uh, love our job more than others, right? Or moments where it feels like a job and other times where it just kind of feels like a calling or part of who you are. And in those moments where it feels more like a job, I think there are time, those are the times when I'm not seeing the applied aspect of what I'm doing, right? So it feels like the siloed sort of something that, you know, maybe when I publish just journal article, three people are going to read it and it's not really going to make that big of a difference. Um, moments where I really kind of feel fortunate to be able to do with what I do are, you know, when I'm in the community speaking at a community conference, right? Uh, being able to kind of translate the research in a way that really might make actionable difference in teachers' classrooms or to, or when I'm kind of commenting on policy, right? When I'm testifying and commenting on, on policies and practices or laws that are about to be implemented, that's where I really kind of feel fortunate and the power of what, what we're able to kind of contribute to society as academics. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your latest contribution to society. So your next project is a parent school engagement program. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted the importance of gaps and what's currently being done. So talk a little bit about these gaps and what is this project and how is it addressing these? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I'm a parent. And so, um, my kids have been intermittently, like so many other parents, at home learning and at school learning. Um, and, you know, my family has not been sort of, um, we've also experienced the challenges of communicating with school and balancing all of these things. And so I think so many families have really had to communicate or in actually the other way, so many schools have really had to think about how they're communicating and supporting families as they're more involved in the educational process, as well as really, you know, maybe a broader society, but definitely at the school and at the school district level, have really started to understood about differential ability of families to support their students, whether that be um, because of their own educational background or be it because of the types of jobs that they're working and the types of resources that they have sort of at their home or in their community. Right, so um, I think it's really kind of, so So one of the neat aspects about this project is we are taking a trauma-informed approach to parent school engagement. Um, and so um, acknowledging that lots of students face adversity um, across sort of the socioeconomic and um, racial ethnic um, distributions, but we do know that adversity can be concentrated within certain populations as COVID-19 has, has, has exemplified. Um, and so for, for schools working with those families, what does it look to engage those families in a really meaningful way, right? Um, and so the traditional model of um, 
parent school engagement has primarily been parent school involvement, right? And so that has put the impetus of being involved in schools on the parents, right? So do you come to parent teacher conferences, right? So that's a traditional way. Um, do you volunteer in schools? Um, some, you know, work around how do you support students, your, the, your children with their homework, right? So that's sort of the quintessential parent school involvement. Um, model. And so we're kind of flipping it in and on its head, um, working with a program that's evidence-based, so it has some scientific evidence behind it, um, called Positive Family Supports, um, and adapting that program to be more beneficial um, or work better um, in communities um, that maybe have experienced more adversity or more trauma. And so this model really focuses on building partnerships with families and bringing families into the decision-making process, both sort of at the school level, maybe through um, parent-teacher organizations being more active, um, or through the process of students that maybe have additional needs, making sure that families are consulted um, and that we're pulling in what we know from um, research on um, how kind of families support child development to create consistency across the school environment and the home environment. So interesting. So can you talk a little bit about what is it going to look like on sort of like the surface level? So if I'm a parent and, you know, my child is in the school, uh, you know, what is my role going to be? How, how is this program going to impact my life? So um, I have, so let, let's get back to the word program, right? So program is interesting um, and we can talk about this later, but I'm a former high school teacher married to a current high school teacher. Um, and so programs in schools are challenging um, and schools are implementing usually a lot of different programs. Um, and so I've tried to move away, or maybe I've always moved away from this programmatic sort of, here's a manual, here's a certain number of lessons you need to either do with families or with students, et cetera, to more of thinking about how do we change uh, process and practices within schools? Because to me, that feels like it's more sustainable. And um, it allows for schools to adapt to their um, community needs, right? And so um, think about it more from like a practice and a process perspective. So if you're a, a family in this school, you might receive, you're gonna receive more uh, communication from the school. So you're gonna receive at the beginning of the school, a screener that asks for your perception of your students' needs, then also asks for some of your family needs, right? And these family needs are, uh, uh, are broader than those related to education. They're related to what we would call the social determinants of education, right? Do you need um, any job assistance? Do you wanna talk about maybe some food insecurity or food supports that we can provide? Do you wanna talk about after school or childcare options? Like what are the other resources that you need as a family, right? And that we know are important to education, right? that are, we know that, that the students need in order to succeed in education. You're gonna get probably a survey about what the school's climate, how, how engaged and involved you feel in the school's climate. You're going to get positive notes from the teachers um, before the teacher kind of calls and says, hey, you know, 
uh, Susie Q, that's my example student's name always, has a problem. Um, you're hopefully going to have already had a positive interaction with that teacher, right? So we're setting the stage. There's going to be a, an organization led by parents that has maybe trainings on how parents, how the school works and how parents should engage and involve with the school. If your student has some problems, you're going to get invited to a meeting with all of their teachers and you're going to collaboratively decide on um, what are some sort of supports you can do at home and what is the school going to do? And you're going to get feedback on how that's going along. Maybe you're going to get referred to some additional parent training, right? So you're going to, going to maybe have some resources around some challenges that you're facing parenting. You might get some referrals for your student. They need some extra support, maybe some around a, a diagnosed or an undiagnosed mental health problem, or even if you have one on your own, right? So you see that it's just a bigger sort of understanding of what it looks like to be to partner um, between parents um, and schools. That is so... it's still in its planning stages. So that's, you know, obviously that's the ideal. In, in reality, schools will implement varying pieces of that. Um, and that's something we can scientifically test, right? So they call those kernels. What are the pieces of an intervention that maximally sort of impact its effectiveness? But that's the dream, right? So that's the dream. <laughs> I think that that is such an incredible, I, I, I think that it sounds incredible, Sarah. One thing that I've always admired about you is that you are so focused on, I don't know, just creating things that real people can actually use, right? And like breaking out of sort of these programmatic, um, I don't know, very academic-y sort of silos, right? Where, you know, we're told as academics that there's a way to do things, right? There's a way to have an intervention, a way to do a program, a way to design anything. And, you know, I, I just think it's incredible that you're, you're bending the mold. And I think that, you know, that's something that should always be applauded because it's coming from such a great place. And, you know, and it's not just because you think it's a good idea, you've got science to back you up on it too. Yeah, the challenge, and this is where we push our science, right? So um, I like to say that nothing I do is rocket science, right? Like those rocket scientists are, are amazing. Not that social behavioral scientists are, but this isn't rocket science. This is a lot of common sense and a lot of what pieces, at least, of what schools are doing, right? And so what we can do as scientists is we can evaluate how do you kind of train and support schools to do this, right? Um, and to do it more intentionally. And so the trick is how do you measure process, right? And then how can you... Um, support sort of that process in other schools, right? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the challenge and that's where we're kind of moving the field towards. Right. So you've mentioned that you had experience teaching in the public school system and your husband is currently a teacher. Do you think that being a teacher and having that experience sort of within schools has shaped you in the work that you're doing now? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. It was the best decision I ever made in my life and the hardest years I ever spent of my life, but my hardest professional years. Um, so um, I took two years in the midst of getting my PhD to become a, pub, a certified public school teacher and I taught in Baltimore City. Um, 
which is where I was getting my PhD. And so I look back now and I don't know how I convinced my advisor and like the department chair to just let me, I told them it was field work. To me, it was field work um, to take two years and like do this other job while I was getting my PhD. So, you know, <laughs> I either was really convincing or had wonderful mentors, probably a little bit of both. I don't know if I would be so lenient if my students came now and said that they wanted to do this, but Somehow I got away with it. So when it changed. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. So what did you teach? Um, I taught biology and anatomy and physiology. So remember, my degree is in biology. So I have a degree in biology, but it's biology and society, which is uh, the social implications, like how how society shapes um, our perceptions of science and particularly biology, but then how changes in science then kind of relate to changes in society. So it's a little bit, it's probably, it's a, there's public health, but it's a little bit public healthy. But anyway, so I had, so I was credentialed so I could teach biology and anatomy and physiology. Um, random tangent, I was the, so I didn't have a lot of resources. A lot of teachers don't have a lot of resources um, for classroom materials, right? And in anatomy and physiology, you traditionally would dissect things, but I didn't have like funds to, you know, get pigs or whatever, you know, frogs, whatever you dissect in anatomy and physiology. So I got very creative and, vi and visited a lot of kind of different ethnic food markets that would have different parts. But my favorite was the um, school secretary would always buy a cow and slaughter a cow for meat for the year. And she would give me the rest of the cow. So, but there's no preservatives, right? <laughs> so I would, for one week, I would have a cow, like all over my, like cow parts all over my classroom. And like, this is what we would do for the week. Like the room smelled, right? By the end of the week. But this is, that was like my favorite unit is when we got our cow and we kind of could system sort of perspective. So yes, I was that crazy. I still am probably that crazy professor, but I was that crazy teacher way back when. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I'm sure the students love that. I remember when I was uh, in high school, we dissected a shark, like a baby shark. That was what my school got. Um, and that was a very exciting day, I think, for everyone. So so um, I was I worked at the Arizona Science Center. That was my first job out of college. Like translation of image and science has apparently always been a thread in my life. But I was, if you've ever been in the science center, I was the person who was leading like the dissections. You know, I worked my way up. I actually ended up doing like the, the parent. So I can dissect a cow's eyeball like no other, like, because I've done it a bazillion times. Um, but actually, some of those, like during COVID, uh, my son was learning about di digestion and there was a digestion demonstration that I used to do. So I volunteered for the teacher to lead a lesson on digestion. Um, and so did this whole like lesson on digestion. And of course, you know, my son's friends, parents or friends of mine who were like listening to this. So my phone like blew up with all the other moms and dads like commenting on my ability to leave a digest digestion demonstration. <laughs> oh, I love that. I feel like that probably is a very handy skill, your ability to dissect so many things. Uh, it makes me wonder. So when it comes to like carving the turkey on Thanksgiving, is that just automatically you or? 
Um, you know, it hasn't been me. I probably could do it better than my husband, but <laughs> maybe I'm focused on other aspects of cooking. I do like to bake more. So, <laughs> well, okay, sorry. You said we wanted to go on tangents, the epitome of tangents. <laughs> it's a, I started it. I was thinking about, uh, you know, the role of dissecting things and cooking. So it works. <laughs> Okay, but we were talking about the importance of being a teacher. So, so yes, like it gives me the very real experience of um, when my work feels really distal or when, well, two things actually, when my work feels really distal or these problems don't seem real, I have names and faces of students who were experiencing this, right? Um, like I'll never forget a student who, when he disclosed, you know, I was all upset because he didn't have his books with him, right? And what, how are we supposed to learn without your books? And found out that he had been couch surfing, right? So his family didn't have a stable home, right? And completely, you know, that awareness of the social reality kind of completely changed my problem solving ability for the student or, or the solutions that were now appropriate, right? The solution, like I need to teach this kid responsibility, right? By having some punitive solution, it was what structure can we make so that you don't have to take your books home and back and forth, right? Um, so very sort of real experiences that I can kind of draw upon um, is the first thing that I learned. The second thing that I learned is from the teacher perspective, I always said early in my career, I, you remember the staples stop button? Was it the staples? Like, you could like pop. I said that I have that button. Anytime anyone proposed something that I thought was not feasible for a teacher to implement, I'd be like, eh, we're not doing that. Like, here's my stop button. Um, I remember like we had homeroom and I was supposed to do social emotional learning lessons in homeroom, right? And I'm, you know, someone who obviously, you know, does school-based interventions and values this. I could not do the, the SEL interventions in my home, not because I didn't want it, but because so many other things that I needed to address as a teacher, I couldn't even manage, right? There was something going on or some crisis or something else I needed to deal with. And so this is probably lends itself to my process and practice approach. I was that teacher who was supposed to implement these lessons and I couldn't do it, right? Right. Um, so that's the other thing is I have my like, this isn't feasible and I'm really careful about sort of the things that I, that I put in place for schools and the feasibility of, of the solutions. So, right. sorry, that was a little rude to that answer. No, I think that's incredible. So as we're talking about sort of feasible solutions, this makes me want to ask you a little bit about your project as, uh, I want to call you an app developer. I don't know if that's selling it a little too much, but I just think it's so fascinating that you have this app that you're working on called uh, the Safety App. And I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about Firstly, what the project is, but also how did how did this even come about? Whose idea was this anyway? So this is great. So this is why I love um, practice research partnerships, and I tend not to like this. That tends to slow me. It's silo people to say you're a practitioner, you're a researcher, and tend not to like to use that phrase. But for this purpose, the practice research divide seems to work. Um, so we had a tool. So this is so um, 
the safety app is built on the safety measure, which stands for the school assessment for environmental typography, better known as the safety. And so we developed an observational measure of the school, uh, physical, and then we added in social at a later point environment um, to kind of look and see if we could serve school climate. And so I do a lot sort of with school climate measure. A lot of that is based on asking people their of the school space, which is entirely valid. We wanted to see if we could get another dimension of it, which is this observational measure. So I, in the spirit of kind of all of my interventions and my philosophy, ever, all data that we ever collected at schools or that I ever collect at schools, I share back to schools in sort of an iterative fashion. Even if I'm using that data for research, they have that data to access to make database decisions and to use on the so I would share this observational data back with the schools and the administrators would love it, right? So the administrators are like principals, vice principals, kind of leaders of schools. They would love it. They would ask me if there was a favorite data point that I shared with them, right? And so normally when you collect data from people, people, it's kind of like a hassle and you have to pay them, right? I, I always pay schools, but this is the first time I like, one of the first times I collected data, the administrators really liked this data. Um, so we created a paper version of that same tool for them, which was shortened with the administrator walkthrough because administrators do walkthroughs of their uh, of classrooms usually, but this was of kind of the physical space. And they loved the through, but they said, the administrator said, this would be really nice if it was digitalized. We want this digitalized. There's too much paper, right? I'm like shuffling through these 10 pages of paper. And so we accommodated and, you know, put it in a Google Doc and some other like low tech sort of solutions. But they sort of gave us the idea to, to develop an app of this and, you know, because they found it useful. And, so, um, you know, flash forward a decade. So I should acknowledge that science and these sort of ideas and partnerships and partnership based research take time, right? So, you know, I've been working on this for about a decade and we have a grant from the CDC, so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, to partner with an actual app developer. So I am not the app developer, um, a great um, uh, female-owned uh, business um, called 3C. Um, and so they are leading the um, app side of it, and I am partnering with them around the content side. And so we are hoping to be in schools in, well, we were hoping to be in schools this year. That's not happening. So we have postponed. So we're hoping to be in schools um, and having administrators try out this app um, starting in August. Great. That sounds so fascinating. Is there any way that individuals who, you know, aren't really involved in this project or who aren't school administrators, but maybe are listening and are really fascinated by this, is there any way for them to get involved or hear more about this? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. So we probably won't have a live version like you can download the app to your phone sort of thing um, until the fall. Um, or this would be fall of 2021. So I know we're dating the the, the timing of this, but um, uh, feel free to, to send me an email and I'm sure I could give you sort of rights to uh, download it and look at it. Um, 
but we're definitely going to be in Arizona schools. We're going to be in uh, schools across the country, actually piloting it intentionally. But Arizona schools are a great partner with us. We have a great relationship with the Arizona uh, School Administrators Association. Perfect. And for everybody listening who wants to get in touch with Sarah, her information will be at the end of the show. So Sarah, one thing that I wanted to ask you about as we're sort of starting to wrap up a little bit is, you know, you really are a jack of all trades. Um, You know, you do teaching, you do research, you're working with students, you're working with the community. Uh, you have a family, you have like a whole life and you're like this multidimensional person, right? Like how, you know, I feel like women are often asked, like, how do you balance it all, right? And, you know, that question is sometimes, I don't know, not great because we don't usually see men being asked these questions. But what I want to know from you is, you know, what what does balance mean to you and how have you tried to cultivate that in your life? Yes, I spend most of my life out of balance. And I think what I have come to accept is that that's okay. And there will be times in your life where uh, things, aspects of it take different priority. And so that's one of the things is I, I do trauma-informed work. I try to kind of apply those philosophies to myself. And so acceptance is a big part of that. And so accepting um, when you're out of balance that you're out of balance and that's okay. And that, you know, this notion of balance is elusive and that there will be times when I spend more of my week being a mom because, um, you know, there are varying family needs and there will be times in my week, you know, aka grant writing season when I will be not very good and not a very good mom. Um, within, so I always say that this, the, the tenure track faculty is, you know, the jack of all trades, master of none. Um, that's true because I have um, colleagues are teaching faculty and that's what they do and they do it exceptionally well. And then I also have colleagues who are solely research faculty and I would argue that they do that and they do that extraordinarily well. Um, And so again, it's this collaboration. So um, I steal things a lot. And so I steal from, you know, all sorts of my faculty in terms of of teaching ideas. Um, But also when you're doing partnership work, you can bring in sort of other researchers who can kind of uh, keep you going at other times when you need to focus more on teaching um, than maybe your research. And so that's when you can kind of rely on your team to support you. And so I would say the secret to my success is teams. Um, Both, you know, my husband and I have a a great team and uh, a great sort of division of family responsibilities. Um, I moved to Arizona so I could broaden my team, my family. I have three brothers and their uh, partners are all here and my mother is here. And so I have a team that helps me with my children. Um, But then I also have a team in terms of I always have multiple students um, involved in my research intentionally, both as a teaching opportunity, but also because they bring their own expertise and I couldn't do what I do without them. Um, Ana Maria Melendez Guevara is like critical to my uh, trauma-informed parent engagement grant and I couldn't do that without her and her clinical background because I'm not a clinician. Um, and so that's a huge asset to the, to the, to the project. Um, and so, yes, it's always, it's always all about teams for me. 
I love that. So on that note, do you have any advice maybe for students who are listening, who are trying to cultivate their teams? Because I think that in grad school, you can sometimes feel very isolated, um, particularly if maybe you're not close with people in your lab, or maybe you're the only one doing your specific area of research. What is your advice for how you start to sort of build those relationships? No, I think that's a great question. Um, and one that I actually really struggle with um, and struggle with answering because there's infrastructure that's needed um, to build a team, right? Or it's easier when there's infrastructure needed. I think one piece of advice that I would give or that I do give students or try to model with students is sometimes you just have to show up and you have to show up repeatedly and you may not see a benefit to showing up for a while. And so um, I give that advice a lot of times when I'm thinking about partnering with the community because I never my partnerships with the community, I should, I'm going to put this very specifically, my partnerships with the community don't really gain research benefits until way later in the partnership. And so I gain personal benefits immediately. And some of my favorite relationships are with members of the community, but you want to go in I, I don't go into these things thinking about what the research opportunity is. I go into them because I'm valuing whatever this group is doing at the moment and saying, how can I contribute my own brand of expertise? And so I would argue that we need to do that maybe the same with our colleagues, right? So not going into it thinking what research collaboration can we have together, but hey, what you do is really interesting. Can I learn more about it? And like just building a relationship and building a sharing, right? And so out of that relationship, you may find that research comes, but I would argue you're probably gaining that sense of community. It's broadening you as a researcher at the same, same time. I would also say the other thing that has to happen when you're doing community-based research is you have to be okay with defining yourself as a researcher a little bit more broadly. So you mentioned my CV. You could also argue if you look at my CV, you're like, what the heck? <laughs> what what research does you know Dr. Lindstrom Johnson do? Because she's kind of had a gam gamut of like different different sort of projects, right? And part of that is because I'm trying to be responsive or it's reflective of sort of the needs and interests of my community, right? And so that's challenging, particularly if you're in a tenure position where you need to define yourself as a research and define expertise, right? So it is sort of a balance that you have to navigate. Um, and one I would argue that uh, we as institutions, we as academia, we really do believe in sort of responsive research that's meeting the needs of the community. We need to be okay with that, right? And we need to be okay with people having expertise in different niches um, and their story being a little bit broader. I love that. I think that was a perfect answer, Sarah. Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know. It's a non, and I believe in relationships. Like I really believe in relationships, but I realize that they're, they take time and, and they can be hard to foster. Um, I often say <laughs> my, my new favorite saying, I could have a PC version. I drink a lot of coffee. I don't know if you could tell this morning, but I drink a lot of coffee. And so like, I like to have 
coffee with people. I miss having coffee with people now that we're all virtual. Um, but my saying of like writing someone in a grant is like, unless we can go out and have a beer, like, yeah, <laughs> we're not gonna, but, and, and that's joking, but I think that it's true. Like research and um, partnership, it involves tough situations. And so you have to be in it with people that you can have tough conversations with and still come out the other end, right? Or know what, know how to talk to them about these things. And so maybe that's that relationship aspect, which I, you know, will say like involves, we need to be able to have coffee together and have a beer. It also relates to that balance question because I'm also someone who, you know, I'm going to tell you that I have kids. So, which is another thing, like women are kind of told and advised, like you need to keep your private life private and your professional life professional. Like to me, that's not balance, right? To me that my kids will impact my day-to-day. -day. I need to be like, hey, I didn't get that done because my son or daughter was sick last night or whatever. And whoever I'm partnering with getting that because that's part of who I am and that's just reality. Right. No, I think that's really great advice about finding collaborators who understand that and respect that too. So I want to transition to the end of the podcast, Sarah, and ask you some of these deeper cut questions. And these are questions that are meant to just get to a little bit more of, you know, the things that have been impactful to you just in your life. Are you ready? I think so. I feel like I need to end on a, like a higher note. I feel like, you know, I'm generally a very positive person. In fact, my students, when I was teaching used to say, you know, you know, Miss Lister, why are you smiling all the time? You know, <laughs> that's what I got because <laughs> I do smile a lot, but I feel like I've been a little bit down. So I'll try to be upbeat. <laughs> okay. So the first question, Sarah, is what is something that you wish you knew? Oh, okay. I want to learn how to speak Spanish. I love that. That's not a deep answer. Maybe this is it, but it is a deep answer to so my, that my husband's a Spanish teacher and he's fluent. Um, and since I, for some reason I grew up in Arizona, but I took French, um, but I really want to learn Spanish both because of uh, the type of work and, that I do and the partners that I have here in the community. Um, and then also we've been trying to raise our children bilingually. Um, and so there is a pipe dream. So I can, I, I hear better than I speak. Um, but this is on my short list of things to do is to start kind of living abroad and for pieces of time as a family. Um, and for me to be in language immersion classes and for the kids to be in, um, uh, you know, education and the other language and things like that. So that's incredible. All right. We'll see I've been promising my husband this for like, you know, we've been married for 14 years, like 15, 16 years. So I'm not there yet, but 2021 will be the year, Sarah, I believe in you. <laughs> so question two is what is the best career decision you've ever made? So I think that the best career decision I ever made was switching my focus. So I went into public health um, to do cancer patient communications. So that's um, what I did my honors thesis at ASU. That was really what I was interested in, more of kind of thinking about sort of how do we translate science to the public and in particularly about cancer. Um, and so like maybe a year in, 
Um, I had done uh, worked with Camp Sparky, which is still going on at ASU, which partners with Title I schools and puts on activities. So I'd been very involved sort of in schools. And I was always thought I would be a, a teacher of some sort. Um, and so I started volunteering in schools in Baltimore City. And that's sort of what led to the switch and focusing on um, school climate. It was framed more as school violence at the time point. Um, but that was probably the, the greatest decision because it really kind of launched um, work that I think I'm really sort of passionate about and kind of tied all my interests together. Well, and I think that takes bravery too, right? To switch your focus from something you thought you were going to do and changing it up. I think that that's really incredible. I think it also, so I had the experience of having a mentor, right? Cause you get assigned a mentor who's in line with your interests. And so obviously in my mid P mid PhD, I had to switch advisors, right? Which is now you're a PhD student, you know, that I got the big eyes, like that's scary. Right. And so the fact that I had both an advisor that was willing to allow me to so fundamentally shift or in a program that it was allowing me to so fundamentally shift and then got adopted by uh, an amazing advisor um, also influences how I talk to students about their own journey through their PhD and my role in that journey. All right, Sarah, my final question is this, what is one rule you would want everyone to follow? So my daughter's really big on the golden rule right now. I don't know if they're learning this in school or, you know, she's six. So it's all about, you know, treat others how you would like to be treated. And I actually think that that's not a bad rule. So right now, I think I'm going to I'm going to go with that. I realize it sounds like, uh, you know, miscongeniality and like, what do you want? I want world peace. <laughs> that's OK. Maybe world peace is OK. Um, and maybe, you know, treating everyone how you would want to be treated is something we all should have in the back of our mind through micro uh, level interactions through the day, but then also sort of in general as a philosophy. Well, I think there's a reason that that's the golden rule. So I think that's an incredible rule. So as we close out today, Sarah, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's been great getting to know more about your journey and your projects. Uh, were there any notes that you wanted to end on? Is there anything you'd like our listeners slash viewers to hear from you before we say goodbye? No, I mean, I think the only thing I would say we didn't touch on it most is I actually, so coming from being a, a high school teacher, teaching is actually a really important part of who I am and something that I uh, enjoy as well as mentoring. So I know we didn't get to talk about that much, but maybe I'll come back on another show and we can spotlight teaching or different teaching modalities or be part of a teaching panel. Because I really do enjoy sort of working with my students at ASU, um, both undergrad and graduate. I would love that. And Including you, Aubrey. <laughs> well, and I would just like to tell everyone, I have had Sarah as an instructor, both as an undergraduate student and a graduate student. And I will say that uh, Sarah's undergraduate class is was very fundamental in my decision to pursue developmental psychology for my PhD. So it's just another way that your work has been impactful and touched a life. So thank you so much, Sarah. Well, we are lucky to have you. <laughs> All right, everyone, that was today's In Conversation. Thank you. Bye. If you would like to connect with today's podcast guest, please email the following. For Aubrey Hoffer, email alhoffer at asu.edu. 
For Sarah Lindstrom Johnson, email sarahlj at asu.edu. That's Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, L-J at asu.edu. Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting thesanfordschool.asu.edu forward slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. This conversation has come to an end, but our work here continues.